it was hard to process and it was hard to try to like, if someone doesn't want to listen to you and doesn't want to have a conversation with you, it's hard to be in the room with that. When being right is more important than being in relationship, difference and questioning becomes something to fear. And fear shuts down connection and curiosity. And shoot, these days, I suspect we've all been there where we hunker down and comfort <laughs> and protect in our self-righteousness. Because unattended grief and rage, they're fertile ground for fear to have a party with our capacity to stay curious and welcome the discomfort of doubt and questions. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Without permission for non-agenda curiosity, trust diminishes, and trust can't exist without the ability to share and question the norms and beliefs of a community. Now, when we're led or we lead this way, questions become a threat to belonging and status quo. Now, I know for me, this was so different from my time in D.C., which was such a formative season of my life. During this time, we would debate and question as a favored pastime. And I was fortunate to have friends and colleagues who represented varied views and beliefs on everything from relationships and dating, politics, systems, theology, and so much more. Everything was fair game. And we would sit at the, on the rooftop of our Capitol Hill row houses or gather around tables at a local restaurant and dive in. <laughs> now, things were rarely light and breezy. Everything was intense and intentional. And I loved it. Sure, there were some conversations that were more vulnerable than others, depending on the topic and who was involved in the conversation. <laughs> and yes, there, were, there was absolutely some hubris involved. No one wanted to lose their argument. But we also deeply valued a constant examination of our beliefs, which I learned was always a win-win. Now, this was not always a graceful process, but it was a powerful and foundational practice I developed. I either walked away from these conversations feeling more clear and confident on a particular belief or position, or I was left with the awareness that I need to reconsider my position, stat, sending me on a rabbit hole to more learning, research, and yes, questioning. Oh, but with everything going on these days, it's easy to dismiss that practice and again, fall back into the self comfort of self-righteousness. And, and today's unburdened leader guest did not have the same experience I had when I was in DC. Uh, when she and her husband started to question some foundational tenets of their beliefs, which were deeply intertwined into their community and livelihood. Now, my first encounter with Lisa Gunger was through her book, The Most Beautiful Thing, which a friend gave me a few years ago when I was in a deep rumble, raising my kids in a world that worships what I feel is a toxic standard of, quote, normal, and has a lot of labels for kids who don't fit that norm. Lisa's journey raising a daughter with Down syndrome gave me language and a sense of validation in what I was navigating raising a daughter on the autism spectrum. And through her book, I also learned she's an incredible musician and artist and a part of a band with her husband called Gunger. In addition to being an author and co-founder of the band Gunger, Lisa's also the co-founder of Sacred Feminine and creator of music for Isama. Now, one of the things that fascinated me so much about Lisa is her experience when she and her husband started questioning beliefs of their faith, which many in their community hold dear. And instead of their doubt and curiosity being welcomed and honored, they lost friends, community, and much of their livelihood almost overnight. Their questioning and doubt came at a great cost and reflected that many in their community were more invested in being right over a relationship with them. And gosh, when you're in the public eye, there seems to be less room for doubt 
and more momentum of just digging in heels to being right at the sacrifice of relationships and dignity. Now listen for what Lisa learned about herself and discovered about her identity when things started to fall apart. Notice how everyone responded to her husband's questioning and what they assumed about Lisa's beliefs as a result. And pay attention to how Lisa moved through and even continues to move through this time of deconstruction and reclaiming. Now, please welcome Lisa Gunger to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Lisa, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We have a lot to cover today. I'm really looking forward to digging into some of the questions. And I know those listening will really appreciate this conversation. I suspect you may want to have a notepad nearby because we're going to dig in. So I want to, I want to start off talking about deconstruction, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and it's a big word and one that's referenced a lot these days, especially in terms of people unpacking their spiritual and faith beliefs. But I also see people deconstructing what they believed about what work is supposed to look like, family is supposed to look like, their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you've been on the forefront of this movement, inspiring so many to question what they were brought up to believe. And <laughs> you did this all very publicly <laughs> while you're changing how you lead yourself, how you connect with your faith, your music, yeah. and the most important relationships in your life, all while others were watching real time. <laughs> No big deal. Tell me about a time when you realized that the life that you're living didn't fit you anymore. Oh, I think there were, there were so many of those moments, but I think the, the biggest one was probably when, um, there was an interview that came up from years ago, um, where Michael was talking about Noah and questioning if that was a real story or if it was metaphor, just like, what were the details of all of that? And how can we actually know um, if Noah was a real person or not was the, like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> so, so it was kind of um, uh, wild to us when that came out. I remember getting a text from my brother. We were driving up to uh, this little lake house that Michael's parents had. We went to there. We went to it every summer, but in particular, this time that we were going, Lucy uh, had recently had surgery and and so we were just going to like kind of decompress and unwind and spend time with our family and then everything blew up um it it went out in some magazines and you know just all over the internet just it was kind of became clickbait i went down to the dock because our phones were just exploding everyone's going what's going on with you guys and before we knew what cancel culture was like, that's kind of what was happening to us, you know? Um, so I went down to the dock and just kind of sat there realizing like, Oh, people, people didn't know. Like we thought that we'd been pretty honest and forthright about like what we believed. We wrote about it in our songs, but I think art, art is just like that. You know, you can interpret it as you will. And so it didn't really catch on until that day, just all the things that we were questioning and because of the fire and the anger behind it, um, I just felt like, oh, this is, this is, it. I mean, we were getting in real time, getting like kicked out of the circles we've been in. And um, yeah, there were some powerful people in those circles that were calling every show that we had, telling people to not work with us again. And um, I wanted to be like, oh, no, 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 but wait, let me explain, or maybe, that's not what I think, you know, like even just Michael and I being able to differentiate our opinions from the others, like it's, you know, couples are so intertwined. And, and so I felt this thing of like, we both felt like, oh, we need to defend ourselves and say, what well, this is what is really what we're really thinking. But then we're like, this is, this is where we're, this is where we're at. And this is what we were thinking and, and more. Um, it, 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 it was just one of those moments. It's like, well, this is, Anything that can be taken and anything that can die is not, we don't need it. We don't need it. It's not for us anyways. And that was really hard to trust and open up our hands to let go because our whole, I mean, our whole finance, all of our finances is tied up in our faith. Um, Just our whole world was built on that. And, um, but I'm really glad that I'm really 
really glad for that shift. It kind of like thrusted us. It thrusted us forward. Anything that we were like trying to hold on to just kind of broke through. Well, you brought up a couple of things there too. I mean, even whether you're in, in a partnership, a marriage, a, a business a relationship, often we can be seen just all as one, you know, mm-hmm. monolith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more for you because you, you mentioned that a little bit about, well, I, I've got my own, you know, mm-hmm. take on this yeah. and, and there wasn't, it was just, you know, and I want to get more into just how dangerous questioning is for some of the spaces you and I hang in, yeah. have hung out in too. But, but for first, just even talking about you being put into this monolith where almost it's like, I got this sense as I was prepping for our conversation that it was just, you know, a group, like you were grouped in and, and even losing a little bit of yourself. So can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more as your questioning kind of caught fire from a lot of folks, uh, fear-based folks in power, how was that for you to get swept up in this and, and your own relationship with your voice and your identity? Yeah, I think it was, it was hard because there were a lot of things that I didn't agree with that Michael was thinking, but it wasn't like I was against it. I was like, oh, that's interesting that you're going there. We'd always really questioned together, which I'm really grateful for. Um, but there were definitely times where like, I would question something that like he wasn't really ready for. And then he would question something I wasn't ready for. And um, I think when he came to a place where he identified as an atheist and I wasn't, I did not. And so in every interview or like interactions that we would have with people in the, that had heard about our story, yeah, I got grouped in with his um, identity. And and it, I felt really angry. I, I felt really, really angry about it for a while. It didn't seem like there was room or questions of like, hey, towards my experience. It was all towards Michael's, um, which I understand because that was the more deviant. <laughs> he was like the more, you know, like deviant in the in the scenario or deviant ideas if uh, they were the uh, more fiery ideas. So I, I understand that, that that's the thing that gets the attention. Um, but I think we'd already experienced a lot of like through our music, people saying, oh, Michael, you know, great, great job writing these songs. We love your music, um, we love your band. And like if we would both be standing there talking to someone, um, they wouldn't really look me in the eye. And I experienced this for so long. And it was just one of those things that, I was getting really frustrated about because I didn't, I didn't experience that like in when I went to art school and I was doing projects and, you know, there was this interaction and this energy between the whole group, but in the band, it was all directed towards one person. And I kept trying to tell myself like, Oh, I'm just, I must have like some ego hang up with this or, <laughs> you know, the things that you try to tell yourself like, aren't happening. This blow up with us in public, I felt like made that even more prominent and just more put me on board with like, well, she's, she's the wife and she must be thinking everything that he's thinking, you know? Um, but I think I struggled with that for a while. And then when it's really able to let that go, I'm still learning a lot about how to feel the emotion we're feeling and not stuff it down <laughs> and let it process fully feel it, let it process. And then like, and then release it. I think it was so weird to me because I grew up in a church that, uh, husband and wife led together and she was very, a very st- strong woman and people, it was equal. It felt like equal leadership. And um, it wasn't until we started traveling more that it really felt like my opinion or my that my presence there was simply because I was someone's wife. But thank God, like I, I don't, I don't feel that anymore. That was a long time ago and we've definitely moved through that, but it was hard to process and it was hard to try to like if someone doesn't want to listen to you and doesn't want to have a conversation with you, it's hard to be in the room with that. So much. I want to follow up on that. But what stands out to me is this kind of merging of who you are, whether it's in your marriage or in your band, was kind of all this monolith that was happening way before mm-hmm. more people started paying attention as y'all, as you and your and your husband were questioning. And so and it's interesting that voice is like, oh, 
don't want to take up more space. Don't be too arrogant. Right. Don't be greedy. <laughs> you know, and these things that that women, those who identify as women or culture as, uh, have been acculturated as women, um, you know, we say like, oh, you know, don't be that woman. Right. You know, oh, and no, it, it feels awful. <laughs> yeah. You're like, don't don't just just ignore what's happening. Yeah. Shrink. And and so and all of a sudden you've got this spotlight, the laser beam. And, and you know, cancel culture is an interesting phrase now because I, I have like I, I have a complicated relationship with it because yeah. I feel like there's a power in changing you know, where we give our attention and our money. Right. I think there's a very power. Yeah. And then I'm seeing it even weaponized and weaponized in politics, weaponized in the faith community. And there's kind of a, a like the Christian cancel culture is like a, a subculture of that that's particularly like nasty yeah. and insidious yeah. and, and like rhetorically flawed on next so many levels, but it kind of makes my mind explode and we see red at times. Um, and so I'm wondering... And I really want you to talk about this from your perspective too, but how do people respond to your journey of not just changing your mind, but just questioning? And and you touched on like there was initial backlash of strangers and then some people actually want to take the time to pick up a phone and cancel your livelihood mm -hmm. because you weren't going along to get along. But for you particularly, what was your experience for better and for worse for folks who showed up for you to hold space for the doubt and questioning you were going through. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, thanks for that question. Yeah. It's, it wasn't, it definitely was not just one-sided. Yes. We lost a lot of close friends and it really mm. damaged a lot of uh, like family relationships, but there were absolutely the people who were like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, me too. I get it. I, I've questioned that. And it was almost like, it's like when that secret is out, you know, then, and then there's just, so many others that resonate you're like oh it's not it's not the scary monster i thought it was yeah our whole like community we had started a church in denver colorado um and i remember when we talked about it one night and we thought everyone was going to leave and they were just like hey thank you for being so honest i think about that stuff all the time and it didn't mm -hmm. know anyone else did i mean it, it's so weird now being on this side of it like how <laughs> It sounds silly, right? Like how taboo it was to talk about. It was just, we were, I was scared out of my fucking mind, like to tell any of my close friends what I was thinking. I was like, this is gonna be it. I can talk to them about all this other stuff, but not, not this, not like question if the guy in the sky, like not tell them that I don't think that's real. But there were so many people that really surrounded us and were amazing and wonderful. And then, yeah, some friendships fell apart that I never thought would. And it was just all the stories that I had heard of people switching faiths, of going like from Islam to Christianity and being disowned by their family. I mean, that was sounded so dramatic to me as a child. And it would, kept hitting me like, I'm like, that's, that's, that's what's happening. And people are just saying that some people, on, it was mostly on, online, um, the meanest things just i mean just what felt like the most evil mean things i mean it was shocking it was really shocking to like the system to the nervous system i was afraid for our safety at some points i was i was really afraid um and you're afraid for your safety yeah yeah there is just tell, tell me more you just don't know like if someone is so thinks that we are leading people to hell. People have done, do crazy things in the name of God. <laughs> and it's wild, even now, even some people who we felt like turned their backs on us or didn't show up, they're, they're in that place now. And they were, they're just like, I was so scared to question and you guys were saying the things that I wanted to say, but I didn't know how to say it. And um, it just, it just feels wild that that's, I, I, even in that moment, in that time that that was happening for us, we we weren't even saying deconstruction because nobody was saying that word. I was like, I don't. Oh, deconstruction. Okay, that that makes sense. I guess that's what's happening. Um, but it is wild on this side of it. Like, there's so much freedom. It seems just bananas that it was so dramatic and and I mean, very painful. Um, I'm not dismissing the pain and the drama of it. It was, but like, 
now knowing how tight I was like clinging to these ideas and clinging to my identity and who I, oh my God, like I wanted to be an important person in the church and I, not just an important person. I wanted to be, I wanted to be righteous. I wanted to know that I had the truth and, um, I wanted to like love God and serve people. And I mean, church was just my, it was my life. And just so much of my identity was wrapped up in this like idea of who I should be. Mm. We're going to dig more into that in a bit. I want to ask one more question about deconstruction. This word started coming up a lot and digging in and I started noticing many faith leaders or even leaders in business spaces would just roll their eyes and devalue those who were deconstructed just committed to deconstructing the systems that they're living and working in today, along with their beliefs. And I'm wondering what you would say to these leaders who just dismiss the deconstruction process. And and maybe deconstruction is probably too much, just even the questioning process. Yeah, I would say that it's not, it's not a fad. It's not some fun thing to process. I think that's what a lot of people think. Um, and that's just not true for the person deconstructing. It's, it's a real process. Um, for some, it feels freeing. For some, it feels terrifying. And when you're going through that, the best thing for a leader in that space to do is be a listener, not a teacher. I love that. Oh, my gosh. And I, I know I have done this in the past as well. If you're not having the experience, it's not happening for other people. <laughs> but people are, who are having an experience that a church leader isn't having feels threatening. And it can, it is threatening to the system. If, if everyone's not aligned and believing this way, then there's no, there's no funnel and there's no one in power. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and deconstruction is threatening to power systems. You got it. And so I think they, you, you could look at your own, your own ego and say, what, what is it that I'm scared of losing here? And I'm, am I really scared? Do I really think I have the power? I think that's easy to see. Like it was easy for me to see like in, like a Catholic church, we have a priest that there's a very dominant head of this. There's a higher, a very structured hierarchy. A lot of people are responding out of fear and a lot of fear that they don't have control or power over other people. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Be a listener, not a teacher. And really listening is its own like full contact sport that you have mm -hmm. to do the work to mm -hmm. really listen, not just have, because I, I mean, I've, I've got two decades as a psychotherapist. I can do the pretend listening face okay. <laughs> and have you think, I can, I can do that, you know, and I can, I can do the nod and the right inflections uh -huh. at the right time, but to really listen means I can coming back to a place of really staying a place of curiosity, but mm -hmm. also you kind of, it's, a, it's an Imago day moment. It's really just understanding who is in front of you and what are they speaking to you if they're an image bearer, right. you know, that there's that to really listen because, and again, I think a lot of people have take, it's scary when you've had power and you feel entitled to power. Mm -hmm. And again, we, we're, whether it's a faith-based space or, or not, but we're seeing a conflation. I mean, I mean, faith and business have become conflated. Mm -hmm. It's an area that I've been thinking about for a while and weaponized in politics, right? Faith, business, politics. It's like, ew. Yeah. And something that's so sacred and precious has like really weaponized and done so much harm. But when we go to a place of true listening and true curiosity and honoring, um, but yeah, the unknown is very scary if you have nothing else to fall on other than yeah. entitled or inherited power. So right. I love that. Um, I want to shift a little bit to your book, The Most Beautiful Thing I've Seen, Opening Your Eyes to Wonder. And, and on page 88, you wrote a little bit about to have some shifts that you were making even in, in your band, Gunger, you said people often ask when the turning point for us was in music. It was once we stopped scraping and trying to get someone, anyone to like our music. Once we began creating unafraid of what vulnerability might cost us, we became more honest with the wrestle of life. Once we stopped caring what honesty might mean for our acceptance, that's when our careers changed. I just want to let that breathe. I go back to that a lot. Hmm. What were the stakes for you? And I really want you to talk about you at this time. Well, yeah, well, at that time I was, I was struggling with infertility and that was a hard thing to talk about um, publicly because people had so many opinions on why <laughs> that was happening and what I should do about it. And um, 
I so I started I started writing songs. So I'll, I'll push pause on that the infertility thing. Um, I started writing songs when I was young, but I I didn't really feel like I didn't know what to do with them. And then along came like the worship movement, and I mean, yeah, I met Michael in college, and um, I started really trying to write a specific way. And I was like, all right, this is what this is what people do in church, and this is the kind of songs that are needed. And I tried so hard, and it's I really am grateful because Michael would be like, that's that's a that's a great song, but that's it's not you know that's not your voice, you know you're trying to be something else. And I'd be like, yep. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And and so, yeah, I think once I was still trying to do that here and there, I remember someone, I went to a writer's workshop where someone said, one of the teachers was like, you don't write for yourself, you write for the audience. What does the audience want to hear? And so mm-hmm. they were all just these stories that I was uh, creating from, that it just got to the point when I was struggling with infertility I was like, okay, th- there's all these stories. This doesn't work for me anymore. I don't, I don't know what they want to hear. <laughs> and even if I, I'm trying and it's not connecting. And so, and, and that's when I wrote Beautiful Things. Uh, we started writing Beautiful Things and Michael and I finished it together, but it was just like that, that really was probably the first big turn for me that nobody knew about is when I was writing that song, I was, it started, I was saying, we make beautiful things because I didn't believe that God did it anymore. I was like, this isn't true. I'm struggling to have a kid. Um, and I'm doing everything I know to do, name it and claim it and believe it, you know, (laughs) just all these formulaic things that so many of us have tried And and it wasn't happening. And so I remember just like sitting at the piano and just being like, I don't believe any of this. I hadn't prayed in years. I didn't read the Bible anymore and nobody knew. And so started writing beautiful things. And that was a chorus that I was just singing it to myself like every day because I, I wanted to believe again that, that our, everything that we experience is like, like the universe is, it's all for us, you know, but at, at that point in my life, I just was like, oh, this is, none of this is, none of this is true. And so, yeah, I felt like it was a really turning point for me to be honest and talk about the pain of life. And and the more I sang that, I mean, it's kind of funny. I threw that song away because I got really annoyed annoyed with it. <laughs> and then it was a, a wow. while later that I came back to it. It was just the process. It was the process uh, that was happening to me. I mean, yeah. And then it felt like I finally was able to sing it and believe it. And that's when I changed it to like, you make beautiful things. And um, and even now I, I still love that song. I can sing it. Uh, a lot of our songs um, had this directionality to it, of like the guy in the sky. But now for me, I can, I feel and sense um, that God, source, love, whatever you, whatever your best word is for it. I, mean, I really think all the words fail, but it's it's everywhere. So I can still sing that to to the all. Hmm. Became your mantra, you know. And I, I'm I'm struck too how you talked about writing this song or writing, and your husband mirrored back, "This isn't your voice. This isn't really you. You're trying to be someone else." And I'm thinking how much we all need people like that in our life when we're showing up with the who we should be or what we should say. Yeah. It's amazing how much. We, we breathe in the the scripts mm-hmm. and the, the the armor and the masks of of fitting in and I'm also struck about you going to a writer's workshop I mean and anyone in business knows like you don't write for yourself you write for your audience and it's I mean yes there's truth but I think there's something about art like true yeah. artistry yeah. Um, that is transcends a business transaction. Right. <laughs> right. It's totally different. Yeah. You can't, oh, you just can't fit art in that box or creativity in that box. Yeah. Yeah. You have to speak from the heart. And I'm like, this is the, this is the only experience I'm having. So why not write from this experience? Like there's gotta be someone else who resonates somewhere. And it's a permission, like you said earlier, when you started questioning and becoming public about it, the friends and the other people in your life that stuck around were like, or even people in your community you were leading were like, thank you. Mm -hmm. Me too. And I've been so alone. 
I've been so alone. And, and so I'm curious just if there's anything else that comes to mind. You talked about when you began creating Unafraid of what vulnerability might cost you. Mm. What has that kind of vulnerability cost you? <laughs> and also, what has it given you? Yeah. I mean, it's cost us, it's felt like cost us everything. I mean, our, our career really took a dive, you know, finances took a dive, became almost obsolete. It threatened every relationship we have, but I would say it's given us the, what's true. I mean, yeah, again, like anything that can be taken is not the real thing. And, and I don't think serves us. So it, it's given us more authentic relationships and we can be ourselves off oh, or like to be able to breathe and be yourself. That's life. That's life. Yeah. Like what, what else are we working towards and why, why would we ever work towards something else? Like, I mean, I, I get it. I get that there's this idea of success and then, but then you're building a prison for yourself. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the one in that prison, like, but I, I just, all the people that there's so many people who are afraid to live, to love who they want to love, um, believe what they feel in their heart is true. I know that sounds dramatic, but it feels like it cost us everything, but it, it gave everything as well. I, I, I wonder too, um, I've, I've spoken with a lot of folks who've been through pretty big um, kind of shifts in their life when they leaned into their truth. And they were terrified. They were terrified, terrified, terrified. And then they did it. And it was like bracing. And sometimes it was a rough aftermath. Mm -hmm. But there was an exhale. There was a becoming. Yeah. Um, there was a clarity. Yeah. You know, in IFS, we talk about self-leadership. It was this embodying more presence of courage and compassion and clarity mm. and calm. And and so that place of anticipatory what if I lose my belonging, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because we're hardwired to want that. Um, what if I lose that? Um, but we end up being a belonging more when we really lean into and integrate what is true. Yeah. And there's so much invested in us not doing that. There's so much invested. Um, I'm curious what still gets in the way of you creating and making music with this kind of freedom. And how do you recalibrate when you're pulled away from what you value? I think what can get in the way for me is a feeling of, I mean, there's such a, like creating content and I mean, you've got Instagram and TikTok and it's just, it can, it can just feel like a lot. I can feel really overwhelmed with social media um, and then feel like I'll, I'll have to like try to like conjure up something <laughs> something to say that I'll be, I'll be like, I don't know. I have nothing funny to say. <laughs> uh, and then I just will stay off for like a month. That's my relationship with the social media. Uh, oh my God. Um, I mean, I, yeah, not to write it off completely. There's some things I love, I love about it. It's really connected me with um, the down, the down syndrome community and friends. And I'm not a one-sided person with, with uh, social media, but when it comes to work, I can just feel stressed out about it uh, if I have to post like something that's that I'm putting my art out. Um, but I calibrate really through meditation and I'll just mm. like sit and center myself. If I'm feeling that anxiety, um, I'll just sit, notice my heart, just breathe and come. Yeah. Really just come back to myself and go like, why, what am I doing? Why am I writing this? Is there some kind of like ego attachment uh, inflammation happening here? If so, like, what is it that I, where am, where am I? And what is it that my heart wants to stay? Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries, your beliefs. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world 
can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is unknown and the doubts and pains from the past and the present keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to shift to something else I noticed in in your work, whether it's in your book or just other conversations um, I saw you have. You, you you write and speak a lot about the burdens of labels, mm-hmm. right? And humans continue a love of them. And so I was like, oh, tell me more. I'm with you. And and I for me, I mean, we sure like things known and tidy, which often boxes people in. Mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to talk about what labels have been particularly challenging for you to shake. And which labels have been the most offensive or destructive yeah. as they've been turned towards you? Yeah, I think one is the the label of a woman and what it is mm. that a woman does. This is how you do the... I, I, and talking about this now, I know like that conversation has been happening forever. But uh, there was definitely a time where there were people in my family who were upset that I wasn't that I was like, hey, uh, Michael, maybe you should do your laundry. <laughs> and uh, just really put, you know, really trying hard to fulfill that gender script. Um, and that was a hard one to tear apart. I think even having the label of like, of being a Christian and what, because I had a script along with what that was, I think that was very destructive. That came along with things, so many things but also like purity culture came, came along with that. And oh. I, like I should and shouldn't do with my body and how much or how little of my skin I should show or how. So pur- I want to tee it up to purity culture too. Okay. And just kind of what it means to be, you know, talked about just in terms of gender and, and even the labels, but even the impact and of what it means to be Christian enough. Right. Or, yeah. you know, and then you, we're we're talking just days after a a leaked draft of a of a change in the law of the land around Roe v. Wade is stirring up a lot in the conversations of if you believe, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you really own this identity, this label, then there's one way to do it, right. <laughs> one way to share it, yeah. Um, and I I love I I have a hard time. I mentioned this to you before we started there's this part in your book, this excerpt that when I first read it, it gutted me in the best of ways. Mm-hmm. It really gave language to something I was um, working through and just the loneliness of years of having navigate parent, parenting a daughter who, who isn't typical mm-hmm. um, to the world standards. And I think even just what it means to be normal to me, that's one of those labels. This is normal. I'm oh. like, that's where I start just dropping the F-bombs, you know, and empowering my kids to push back when they say this is the way it should be done. And this is what it means to be good, oh, right? Like gosh, yeah. good yeah. and and enough. Like if you're in, you know, all of those labels, like um, that, that it's like amazing how much my kids have breathed that in or beautiful, like this is beautiful. Uh, what really is. Um, and so it, particularly with my, my daughter's autism diagnosis, having a clinical background and understanding these things, you know, it's, and I would read these books myself and I just kept putting things down going, Ugh, this is not helping. This okay. is not helping. This is actually furthering. Yeah. I feel like it's othering even more. Like I, I want to understand the brain. I want to understand 
um, how I can help. I always said I wanted her to be able to communicate the best she could, written and verbally, whatever that looked like. I just knew that if she could communicate what she needed, what she wanted, I just felt like that was such a big deal. But in terms of you know, how community experiences the label of autism. And, and for you, I know you experienced a, a diagnosis of Down syndrome with your second daughter. And I'd love for you to read from page 140 in your book. I believe you have it nearby. Yep. Um, the excerpt we spoke about that kind of talks about this. So, yeah. and then we'll take it from there and I'll see if I can keep my shit together while you're reading. <laughs> Let it fly. Let the shit fly. <laughs> um, okay. I know it was meant to prepare me, but the more I read, the more I didn't find Lucy in the pages. It was just information, definitions, facts. I realized our words and definitions do a great job of explaining something complex, but definitions just can't hold the essence of a life. I wondered what it would have been like to give birth to a child with Down syndrome before the syndrome was labeled? Would we be able to see the child instead of the definition? Would I have been so scared? Typical babies don't get a book of lists handed to them on the first day. Hey baby, and this is like me talking to Lucy in the hospital. Um, so yeah, this Lucy was recovering from her first surgery. She had a two days old and so I'm sitting on the couch and she's in this little bassinet. Uh, so hey baby girl, this list, it is not who you are, my love. I said silently, more my soul speaking it to hers. You are not a list. You are not an outline of concerns or health risks. You are a gift. Perfect. And then I know you're going to show us all a thing or two about what it means to live a full life, no matter how many years you get. Yeah. How is How are these words different from the conventional wisdom you are facing? I think the typical words you get are not about the essence of a human being. They are all about um, what to be afraid of and the difference. It's all about the difference and packed full of fear of what you, what we should be afraid of with that difference. It's very dualistic instead of, it's very separating instead of connecting. It's so reductive too, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. these words don't define this life that your heart's exploding right. for. And for me too, it's, it, and I'm, I'm going on the next level. My daughter is turning 14 tomorrow at the oh, recording wow. of this. Wow. And I know, I know. Wow. And seeing just reflecting on a lot, but that it, it is distancing. It is othering. It is, it is fosters fear versus it's just a, it's just another aspect, right? There's so much, we think it's a failing or some, you know, it's like this. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it's just complicated. And I, and I, and yeah. it's forced me to face my ableism on a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What my, my fears and concerns or also noticing what we're helping her do. Are we helping her conform right. or do we need to help shake things up in the spaces we're in so that they can change, oh which is gosh. its own, own beast, right? <laughs> It is its own beast. Oh my God. I mean, we just had, you know, there's all these about, I'm sure you're familiar with all the evaluations that happen in school. And we just had one that was two hours long and it was two hours of someone, of people saying like that Lucy's behind in school and not like just so way behind for two, <laughs> for two hours. I actually made a joke during part of the meeting as they were like telling us like, so do you have any concerns or do you, you know, when you see like where she's at and I go, I was like, wait a minute, are you, are you telling us she has down syndrome? <laughs> Cause it's like, wait, what are we doing? You're comparing her. What's the normal? What exactly. does that, that fucking mean? Like that's I not agree. like a group of people decided what that is based on their experience of the world, not based on someone like it's it's just it 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 just blows my mind that i'm like, I like st I'm getting stuck in my words because i'm like what how are we doing this and why is this a thing that there's a a measurement system 
based on fucking who? Well, and then circling back to what we started talking about as you started deconstructing and the force, the powers at play, this is not the way that you do faith. You know, and there's folks, this is not how you do business. (laughs) This is not how you do education. It's all connected. And I'm starting to see that more and more. My husband Mm -hmm. is a veteran educator. And so he talked me down quite a bit because he translated. He's like, this is the system. This is good people in the system. This is what they know. We don't have to agree with the system, but let's not, you know, do bodily harm to the folks delivering the messages. (laughs) And I'm like, they don't, you know, so he was able to, and he did it in the most beautiful way, even though he threatened Simba, like, what are you saying to me? (laughs) We are are defending our daughter. We are going to burn this down. He's like, Great. And this is our community. And these are, so, but he helped translate that so we could help them know that their worth wasn't on the line that that helped transform. You know what? Let's take a look at what normal is like we, but it it took a lot of work to get there because it was like, who, who decided this? And there's this less than this hierarchy again, that I see my kids like they breathed it in themselves. So Mm -hmm. I'm, and, and you touched on this a little bit already. Well, now that you have some more space from these words that you read, um, space from her birth and, and those early surgeries, how do those words land to you land with you now? And and I'm so curious what Lucy is teaching you today. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I mean, she's hilarious. This child, I think she's she always teaches me to be present and even things like that I'm holding on to. I can mm-hmm. I, I am can be so caught up in thought in the past and just ruminating about things and kind of like have a, an obsessive tendency to just really go round and round and round with a, an idea or something that I've done. And how, when I witness Lucy, she'll like do it and she's done. That's it. <laughs> and she's like, she's so present <laughs> and so honest and full of life. Like, Oh my God. <laughs> my- I have one of my best friends. Our girls were playing in the backyard together the other day and there's, they were splashing and the look on Lucy's face, like I took a picture of it and my friend and I were looking at it and it made her cry. She was so overcome with the joy Joy. Lucy was experiencing because Lucy was just like eating up the moment, man, like eating up life and just so loving being in the pool with her best friend and they're naked and they're splashing and there just seems like there's no hindrance. She's not, she's fully in her body, you know, she's in her body and she's loving life. And she, every day, every day is like such a, she mm. reminds me about, about that. I'm like, all right, I, I want to be like Lou. Well, and that, and that brings me to kind of where I want to shift our conversation that in addition to creating music and writing, you're also leading workshops on embodiment. Yeah. And I'd love for you to walk me through what embodied leadership means to you. And I, I want to cap it because these terms are thrown a lot, especially around more of the business training spaces. And mm. but, I mean, even there's some good meaning behind it, but I, I want to hear from you what embodied leadership means to you. Hmm. I actually haven't heard that, like the embodied leadership. I haven't heard that before. So what comes um, up then when I say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think immediately what comes up for me is like, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> Ooh. But, I, but I think I, I think I have a little bit of an aversion to the word leadership. Um, Ooh, tell me more. Yeah. Well, this is real time happening. I'm like, why do I have an aversion? I think because leadership in my story has so meant don't, don't be authentic. And put on a put on a put on a thing, put on this garb, and let's pretend you're more important than other people. And your ideas are like, why are they more important? Why is the things that I think about faith? Why is everyone listening to that? Like, <laughs> like that is what was kind of bananas to me. I I just think the way I've thought about leadership and the way I've experienced leadership has been unhealthy. And when I think about myself, what it what it means to be an embodied person, I would prefer that like. I don't want to see myself as an embodied leader. I would be like, how, no, how am I just an embodied person? And for me, that's having every part of my body connected. Cause I think, uh, there's times in my life I was like, oh, right now I'm so in my head. Oh, right now I'm so in my heart. Oh, right now I'm so in my gut. And I can feel different. I can, I'm way more in tune now with it than I think I ever have been. And I'm still learning, but I can feel what it's like to 
shut my heart down because I think, uh, I've thought, oh, this is, this is the place where emotions reside and I need to just be a head person here and make a decision off of that. I want to nudge a little bit more on this leadership, leader word, because I mean, so I, I mean, my sense is you claiming the word I am a leader brings up a like, and it makes sense, especially with your story and what leadership, what you experience of leadership, it makes sense, at least from an outsider's perspective. For me, I see like I'm a systems trained thinker. So for me, a leader is someone whenever you enter a room, the physics of that room changes. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is how do we want to impact that room? Mm -hmm. And so I look at the work that you've done and are doing um, and even some that people don't even see, you know, I know as, as a, as a partner and as a mom, you're, you're having an impact on the room. So, so how, mm. how do you want to own your leadership mm. at this season of your life? Yeah, I think I want to, my desire is to really see people. I think when I it used to be, when I walk into a room and I knew people like knew who I was, I would try to maintain some kind of like be something for them. Yeah. Oh. And now I try to posture myself of going, what, how can I see them instead of them seeing me? How can I see, really see people? How can I not put on that, that garb of not identity or what I, what I think I should be for someone else, but really just be in the moment and taking away these ideas of like this relational transaction. This is who this person is to me. Um, this is who I am. This is who they are. Like, I love, I love getting the space that where like that doesn't exist. So you can really be in the moment with someone. So then circling back to embodied leadership, does it feel a little different if you put it on? Yeah. As we un- unpack it a little bit, tell me more what, what, what's standing out to you as you start to think about mm. what embodied leadership means to you. Mm, that's great. Good job. Wow. <laughs> you really brought this back around. <laughs> you know what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's modeling authenticity and vulnerability. And if I'm present with myself, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah, if you're present with yourself. Yeah. I got, yeah. I'm just like, I'm like punching the air right now. I'm super excited. And I'm like, this is it. <laughs> Sorry, I got excited. That's great. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's it's the leadership. It, the more that I am present and authentic to who I am instead of who I've been told any any script or role, stepping out of any script or role and and being in my heart, being in my body, in as much as possible um, in every moment. Yeah, that's what embodied leadership would be. So for you, what is living an embodied life for you now? And how is it different from earlier in your life and career? I think I'm listening more. I think earlier in my career, there was, I had, I had preset answers. And now I can be more in the moment and feel what I'm feeling and know how to articulate that without fear. Presence, clarity courage. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing self-leadership right here mm-hmm. again. Yeah. But also, and then curiosity, what am I feeling? As often I say, when I work with folks, what are you feeling? Where are you feeling in, in, mm-hmm. your, in and around your body yeah. and noticing and then just exploring further? Yeah. It's not an efficient process, but it's a very rich process, <laughs> oh, right? <laughs> so good. I remember my, yeah, my uh, friend and, and colleague, Hillary McBride, when we first started working together and becoming friends, yeah, she'd be like, where do you feel that in your body? And that was such a strange question to me. I mean, <laughs> we would, we definitely would make like fun of after a while, like, oh, tell me where you feel that in your body. But it's so, it's so good. And it goes back to those labels. Like I could, yeah, coming back to listening. What, what is that? Not labeling it, just noticing. I'm curious, what do the younger parts of you think about 2022 you today? Oh my God, that's a great question. Oh, I mean, I think even last year, I think I would be like, oh, she's like, what What have you done? (laughs) What have you done? Um, But I think now she's like so proud. I think she's so proud Mm. of me for... Mm. Um, being brave and finding myself, yeah, finding my inner teacher. 
You touched on this earlier about success, and I, I want to just ask you briefly about how you view success, especially after experiencing a level of fame. I mean, a, a couple Grammy nominations and, you know, and especially within subcult the Christian subculture fame is its own kind of thing. I, I'm curious, how do you define success now and how is it different from what you were taught? Um, so, oh, I mean, I think it is that like gain the why gain the world and lose your soul. I think I'm like, oh yeah, I get that now. That I think I used to think success was money and stability or the illusion of stability really. Yeah, I got to the point, I'm like, wait a minute. Why do I care about people liking me? What is that mechanism? Why is that there? That doesn't give me anything. I mean, I think if you have it long enough, you can realize like that doesn't give you something true yeah, now I feel success. When I go through my day, success really is, can I, can I stay in my heart? Oof. How, how, how much can I just stay in my heart? Like even after, you know, writing the book or going to the Grammys, like you think that there's some arrival and we've heard everyone, everyone who has achieved this cultural idea of success has said the same thing. I thought it would be this, and then it wasn't. I thought fame would be fulfilling, and it wasn't. I thought that that, because you keep chasing something, there's no end point. It never, you never get there. <laughs> and it, so it, and then it, that just, that's a whole wild experience of like, what am, get there, what is there? There is, whoa, like it's only, this moment, everything else is memory. Everything else is thought. This moment right here is the only thing to get to. And so how in my heart can I be in every moment that I have the honor of experiencing in life? That makes everything, oof, like, yeah, so getting a little teary. <laughs> like that makes everything holy. And this is what I love in scripture, like noticing like every, every all the bushes are burning. You know, they, they noticed it was holy ground. It, it wasn't in, nothing magical happened in that moment that wasn't already happening. They were just embodied enough to feel it and experience it, present enough to the moment to experience the magic of every moment. I'm listening to you talk going, oh, I know, presence. And, and sometimes presence isn't bliss. Right. Sometimes real presence is oh. exquisitely painful right. and tender. There is something when you're in that sense of embodiment and just noticing that there, it just, there is an energy about that and a freedom in that and a clarity in that, that feels fleeting. Um, and it feels, um, it feels immensely precious. And there's so much that's just wanting us not to be present. Right. And even right now, it's easier for me to go to outrage. And I know my outrage is going to take me to action and, you know, the, to, to things that need to be said and to be done uh, with my time, with my energy, with my resources, how I support people doing that too. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is sometimes these moments of just being with even our pain. Yes. Um, there is a place where we're also very alive and very embodied. And, it, and if we're befriending it, it doesn't always take us out. Sometimes I think it can, yeah. but I don't think it always takes us out when we befriend that and not in a patronizing power over way, but an, an abiding with. Yes. And so that's kind of yes. what I'm taking from yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so one last question before I go to some quick, is this, and I, probably, I think I know the answer, but I want to ask it anyways. Yeah. Is this what you thought you'd be doing today? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Mm -mm. like in, like, yeah, in, ge in general of life. No, mm -mm. I didn't, I didn't at all. <laughs> What are you working on right now? Uh, well, we're actually working on a new album. And I didn't even think we'd be doing that. But we are working on a worship uh, album. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That was so perfect. I love, I love the face. Um, I love it. I love it. Because even we're like, wait. I, I gave Lisa a face. <laughs> <laughs> like wait what <laughs> come again <laughs> even my even my one of my best friends yeah she's like wait it, what are you singing to and and I'm like yeah I love I think this is all this is all sourcing God again like 
whatever word you want to call it, whatever is happening is I, I feel the center of it is love. And so singing, I still love come back to this, like, um, or not come back to I've like always loved singing worship songs, not the ones that are like the guy in the sky, the us against them, the ones that are separating. No, the ones that are connecting. Yes. And so we've been writing here for a that. lot of songs and we are wrapping up the album this week. Oh my gosh, congratulations. Yeah, it's been so fun. Oh, just getting back into just the depth of music. It's so good. Um, And it's been wild writing from an embodied place. I I can feel it when if I'm writing a song and I just go to a certain place, I'm like, okay, oof, all right, let me, how am I even posturing my body as I write this? Am I like, oh, you know, tensed up? And it's kind of wild how I approach my work now. so we're working on that, I'm working on some dates um, with my friend Hillary, some sacred feminine dates, these retreats that we do. Um, I'm working on my own music. I have music out under, uh, it's called Isa, I-S-A, Ma, M-A. So that's Isa, Ma. And yeah, we've got a lot of stuff cooking. There's some other things that I probably shouldn't say yet because they're not that developed, but we're really, I'm really excited about them. Uh, just a lot, lots of creative stuff coming. When you're ready and able to talk about them, <laughs> please come on back. So I've got some quick fire questions I want to ask before we close out. What are you reading right now, Lisa? Oh my gosh, that is really hard because I read many books at a time. Um, so I'm reading, uh, I was, I've just finished up a class in the Bhagavad Gita that I loved. And in specific, Ramdas has a book called Paths to God. Um, where he teaches on the Bhagavad Gita. So I'm reading that. I'm reading um, Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Um, I'm reading Awakening the Body. I'm reading uh, The Women Who Run with Wolves. It's really good. Ooh. Yeah. That's dense. Dense. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's real dense. So I'm very curious, what song are you playing on repeat right now? Um. Well, this is, yeah, I hope this doesn't, sound super ego or something, but <laughs> we've just finished recording a song and I can't stop listening to it. There's just, it, it's, there's the, this magic in, in it that all the musicians brought. Like, again, we've got these two guys in our back house right now who are recording with us and, oh, just the magic, the, the vibe, the feel, the energy they're bringing to it. I just have li- been listening to it on repeat. And I'm, I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited for it to yeah. come out. All right. Yeah. Now I am very much so too. The face is gone and the anticipation <laughs> is here. All right. <laughs> what is the best TV show or movie you have seen recently? Oh my gosh. I've never said this before. I've never had a favorite movie of my life, but the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once is my favorite movie of my life. It's in the theaters right okay. now. Dang it. I, I I know we haven't gone back to the theater yet, but you're the second person that said this to me. So, all right. I might have to mask up and take the plunge. Take it. Um, I heard it was phenomenal. Oh, what yeah. is your favorite, anything, what's your favorite 80s movie or pop culture piece from the 80s? Oh, uh, The Princess Bride. Oh, <laughs> of course. What is your mantra right now? I think that the most recent is you, you are love. You are oh. love you are love. So instead of like, it used to be like a directionality to it, or you are loved. <laughs> you just are. You are, you are love. Yeah, it's beautiful. What's an unpopular opinion you hold? Mm. That Christmas music can be played at any time of the year. <laughs> that <is> unpopular. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Nobody, everybody else is like, this is when you can listen to this. And I'm like, what, you're going to put like a rule on when I feel good? No. <laughs> no. I can't reject that. <laughs> that, that. That's a very polarizing topic, though. It's hilarious. People have very strong feelings they, about one camp or the oh, other. It's a funny really one. They really do. A, <laughs> uh, and lastly, who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Mm, um, I mean, I love so many different, I love so many authors. I feel like I could rattle off so many different people. The one, the, spiritual teachers that I, in this season of my life, I'm really resonating with is Eckhart Tolle, Ram Dass, um, and Mirabai Star. And, but I think like the date, also my, my kids, that might sound cliche, but it's so true. Cliches are cliche for a reason. Yep. 
They're very universal. Mm -hmm. Lisa, this was a pleasure. I am honored and so grateful for our time together today. And I know those listening are going to get a lot out of hearing you share from your heart and your story. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. When we can hold space for the discomfort of questions and pushback, we build trust and foster health and safety. But this process is messy and scary to so many who lead today. But because Lisa named and spoke her questions and held to the truth of her experience, others came forward and felt less alone. This is such a powerful reminder to speak up and share our doubts because others are often feeling similarly. So I'm wondering, how do you respond when you're questioned or those you lead or care for are questioning things that you hold dear? What comes up for you when someone in the public eye changes their mind or starts to question a closely held belief? And how can you build the capacity to hold space for questioning and doubt so not to see it through fear, but through courage? Now, we all have a responsibility to cultivate spaces where there's permission to ask the hard questions and to make sure that being right does not come before respect and dignity in relationships, even when we deeply disagree. Now, this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.